Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Gary was an extremely prolific writer, and he intended to make this the toughest, most hard-hitting script that they would ever see in Hollywood because they were going to give him the chance to direct it. Gary DeVore's 1997 Ford Explorer was pulled from the California aqueduct late this afternoon. His skeletal remains still buckled in the driver's seat. If you did the mathematics on the odds of this, it would be astronomical. Man, there's no way in hell that he did what he did. Confused and tired. CHP investigators say it looks like an accident, but DeVore's widow is making the TV talk show rounds, calling the death suspicious. In my own mind, feel that there is crime here. I do not feel that my husband drove off of this bridge. Someone created the perfect crime, and then the investigation is imperfect. Today, investigators were back on the scene trying to figure out how DeVore's vehicle went off the bridge above the aqueduct without damaging any road barriers. The person we thought died in a car accident actually might have been killed. When the body was pulled out of the water, private autopsy said, well, there's some confusing elements here because the, the body hasn't got any hands. He said, I'm going to make this a hard-hitting piece of material the studio has ever read. You know, when you receive a warning from a CIA and DOD contractor. Back off the CIA, you're going too far with this now. I think once you start on something, you want to see it through. I'm going to go to LA. More to the point, we are going to go to LA. Good guys can do bad things to bad guys. Perhaps the biggest thing we've come up with since we've come to LA. You need to quit talking about the Gary DeVore case. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rod Lott. It's good to be back, Mike. Thanks. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are discussing the documentary film The Writer with No Hands. Directed by William Westaway, the film tells the story of writer and professor Matthew Alford and his investigation into the strange case of Hollywood screenwriter Gary DeVore. 
We'll be discussing any and all twists and turns in this documentary, so please be warned, spoilers ahead. So, Rod, what did you think of The Writer with No Hands? First of all, I don't buy the conspiracy behind it. Regardless, I think that the documentary is intriguing to watch, but equally as frustrating to watch. I was left with Actually, I started off with so many questions, and I ended up with even more. I don't know if it was fair of me, because I listened to Alford reading his book, and then I watched the documentary, so I think I came in with more information, but I can totally see what you're saying. To the point of, when I watched the shorter version of the movie, after I was done, I was like, did they even talk about him not having hands in this version? I can't remember. Very little. Uh, I think I watched the longer version, and it seemed to come in about maybe 40 minutes into it, but it wasn't like treated in depth, and it seemed almost like an aside. But my big issues with the film started from the very beginning when Alford is looking for a filmmaker just on Facebook and finds Westaway. They don't go into any detail about how that came about. It's almost like he was just looking for someone to go along with this. And Westaway himself, as the narrator, says something to the effect of Alfred saying, I'm going to uncover a big story here. But at that point, he hasn't done the investigation. He hasn't found out the big things like he had came up with no hands or anything like that. So it's almost like Alfred was going in with incredible bias. And he strikes me as the kind of person who was or did and just was looking for anything, any sort of breadcrumb that he could turn into a loaf. I was even unclear the first time around, as far as when did DeVore go missing? When did Alford become interested in this? And then when was DeVore found? And just so people at home know this, apparently DeVore went missing Friday, June 27th, 1997, and he wasn't found until July 1998. So there's a a year that goes by between when he goes missing and when they find the vehicle. And Alfred comes into this in that interim period. But yeah, that's not necessarily made clear. This is a documentary about one of the most reluctant documentary subjects. I don't even think he wanted a documentary necessarily to be made. It felt like he wanted just somebody to record this stuff, but I don't know what he would have done with it afterwards. Yeah, and that's another thing that's not made clear. And the fact that towards the end, when they sort of wrap up this investigation, a year passes, supposedly, where the two had no contact with one another. That is hard to fathom. And then the ending of the film, which is, I really don't want to spoil it, but (laughs) you'll know it when you see it is so mind-boggling in such a crazy way on Alfred's part that I wondered for a split second if this entire thing wasn't a put-on. It's not, but it left me with that kind of – not left me. I started off 
for just a brief second or two thinking, wait, is this whole thing a hoax and I was just conned? No, it's not. Okay, I don't want to cast dispersions on what Alfred is or is not like in real life. But judging from what the film gives us, I'm going to say he wasn't in maybe his most right, quote unquote, frame of mind when all this was happening. Westaway sort of hints at at Alfred having trouble in his marriage. They don't really talk about why you see his i assume it's his wife just from the back in one scene i think you see him sleeping on the couch at one point having been in that uh divorce scenario (laughs) you know you're not always in your right frame of mind and i wonder if that maybe wasn't the case here too to go back for a second even when i'm saying those dates and stuff i'm just like well the movie first, well, the first version of the movie came out in 2014, so there's no way they're working on this movie for 16 years. So I don't know when, in the interview, Westaway says when he got involved, and I want to say it was like 2011, 2012. So the stuff that goes on in the documentary, as far as the revelation of the body being found, it feels almost like they're trying to present it as it's a new piece of evidence, even though it would have been found so many years before. So it's, it's really weird. It's really weird. I only watched the longer version, but I watched the trailer first when you first approached me with this. And it seems like the trailer is selling a documentary all about centered around these hands that go missing the movie. It's glossed over almost entirely to The trailer suggests something that's very seedy. Who got to this guy? The movie itself just asks all sorts of questions and throws up all sorts of theories. But the hands themselves, (laughs) that sounds so weird to say too, (laughs) the hands are not even really a factor in this thing. And what you watched wasn't even the longest version. That was like the middle-sized version. That's the 2017 cut, and there's the 2014 cut that neither of us have seen, and I don't think we will ever see. So that's the version that has Haskell Wexler in there, and I don't think he shows up in the 2017 version at all. It's just... it's. The, the history, I, I'm flummoxed by this movie. The history of the movie itself, the, the way that these different cuts go. Westaway was saying in the interview that the reason why they made the documentary shorter was because there was too much information in the longer version. But I don't think length necessarily translates to information a lot of times in filmic language because you can have a two-hour, four-hour documentary that tells you absolutely nothing, or you can have a five-minute documentary that is jam-packed with information. It doesn't necessarily matter. You know, cutting out length doesn't necessarily cut out information is what I'm trying to say. And there's not enough information in this film. What are the major differences between the cuts? That's like I was saying, it was kind of unfair because having read the book I or listened to the book, I think I was putting things into the movie or seeing more things to it than are actually on screen. Do you know what I mean? I do. Maybe the more fair question is what's in Alfred's book that maybe didn't make it into the film concerning the investigation? 
the stuff that I found the most interesting was actually the days before the investigation and just getting more backstory on who Gary DeVore was. And, you know, DeVore, he is somebody that, you know, I, I didn't know that I enjoyed his work. It wasn't one of those, you know, we, we covered tracks on this podcast years ago. And by that time, he would have been missing and found and this would have been a thing like like had i done my proper research back then i would have found out oh gary devore who wrote this and who produced tracks did all this other stuff and he's missing and then they found him without his hands and yada 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 so this actually made me go back and revisit tracks and finally so i don't know if you you probably have never listened to our tracks episode but that was years ago you're wrong i have really holy cow (laughs) well do you remember that there was a huge snafu with that i think it was a conspiracy personally (laughs) justin had recorded interviews with robert davi and shadow stevens for that episode and through some sort of weird thing with dropbox totally fucked it up and lost the interviews. I think you need to get Alfred on this. Alfred. So I went back just recently after listening to the book, after watching the documentary, all this stuff. And I contacted Davi. I contacted Priscilla Barnes, who actually went out with Gary DeVore and Shadow Stevens. Barnes didn't really get back to me. Robert Davi, I don't know, after we've talked about uh, An American Christmas Carol, I don't know if he'll ever come on the show. (laughs) Shadow Stevens, though, actually got back to me and recorded an interview, and then that interview completely blew up. So I was like, oh my god, this episode is fucking cursed. (laughs) But absolutely, fortunately, I reached out to him, I told him, this is what happened, and he got right back to me. He said, yeah, sure, I'll call you tomorrow, we'll do it again. So... We we did a second interview, so now I'm going to go back to the tracks episode, and I've never done this before, but I'm actually going to put the Shadow Stevens interview back into the tracks episode, so that people can have the the full story of Shadow Stevens at least with that. I wish that Robert Davi would have talked to me as well, but there's that, and he does mention Devore, and he mentions how Tracks was such a huge disappointment. And he, you know, to Shadow Stevens, Tracks was such a disappointment to him that he also thinks that it was, and maybe it was, a huge disappointment to DeVore, who put a lot of time and energy into this. And then he's like, well, I think that might have, you know, pushed him over the edge kind of thing. Yeah. It, we're, we don't really know what DeVore's state of mind was either. The guy was married four times. I believe I seem to read he had an adi- he had addiction issues maybe at one point. I don't want to say for sure. Maybe I'm confusing him with someone else. But divorce as much as a mystery as the mystery of his death, as the film has it. I, I don't even think the documentary does its homework on who Devore is. They talk about him being a screenwriter, but the the most depth they really go into that is. Uh, Alfred picking out or getting his DVDs and VHS tapes and showing them to the camera. But I think they mentioned Raw Deal and Back Roads with Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones. But they don't even mention Running Scared. And that's that, I think, is uh, almost as uh, high profile as Raw Deal was. That was probably his biggest success. And that, of course, is the Billy Crystal, Gregory Hines 
pairing, not the Paul Walker running scared. I saw running scared probably about six or eight times when 1986, 1987. I grew up with that. So I knew Gary DeVore without knowing Gary DeVore, kind of like you. Yeah, I love Running Scared, and I don't know how many times I've seen that, but I never made that connection. And I love Raw Deal. Raw Deal was one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger films. I mean, I don't know what it was, but I would go back to that one more than things like Red Heat, you know, more than some of his other films. But him driving through that, like, scrapyard with the Rolling Stones playing, I mean, that is one of my favorite scenes. Him with... uh Darren McGavin making him walk and all that. Come on, Harry, all that kind of stuff. It's just like, this is fantastic. To go back to something you were saying about the disappointment of tracks and what effect that might have had on DeVore, that's absolutely something that the movie does not explore and could have contributed somehow to his state of mind after that because his, his filmography sort of dissipates almost completely after that he had a failed pilot that aired on cbs in the summer of 89 and then the one of the dolph lundgren straight to video action movies pentathlon which i've never seen and other than that that was it for him yeah other than that he was doing rewrites so he would come in and do a polish on passenger 57 time cop sudden death and the relic that we know of. I mean, it was, it's always tricky when it comes to screenwriters. That's what I always say whenever I interview writers is these are your credits that I know of. What are the credits I don't know of? And so this is, I think stuff that he worked on. He also apparently worked even on uh, the newlywed game and the Steve Allen show. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he goes back all the way to like the night, late 1960s working all the way up until the relic came out in 97. So he was writing up until then and then working on this other screenplay about Panama, which that whole revelation of like, I know why Gary DeVore was killed. That comes somewhere in the middle of this documentary. Absolutely bizarre. Are we supposed to, as the audience, are we supposed to expect that Alfred never said this to Westaway at any other time other than when they're standing on the side of the road and the camera's just going all over the place and it's just like, what the fuck is even happening? What am I looking at? And then all of a sudden it's like, I know why Gary DeVore was killed and here's why. And not only that, but I just don't buy it. Uh, because if that were the case, wouldn't Oliver Stone have been killed like 12 times over by now? Yeah, which makes me question like Oliver Stone's Noriega project that he was working on forever it's like, were you guys treading the same ground or what? There's so many things that this this documentary just left me hanging on, I feel like. Not just overall, but just scene to scene to scene. When they go and talk to the former is it CIA guy or a guy who claims he was in the CIA or something. They go to his apartment and then the guy wants to tell them something off camera Oh, are you thinking of Michael Sands? Like, yes, yes, yes. Uh, is it CIA? Is that what it was? Yeah, he was an agent. Well, I think it was a model, and then he was an agent, but at the same time, he was working for the CIA, allegedly. So kind of like Chuck Barris. I did. I totally got a Chuck Barris vibe off this guy. 
I mean, that scene alone just leaves you like, what? What is the point? What are you trying to say? (laughs) Why didn't you say anything to us? Give us some details. It's just like everything is so shrouded in mystery. And either they were unable to pursue it to any kind of explanation or they were unwilling, knowingly or otherwise, to reach some kind of conclusion just just even for us endings of scenes and that that to me just completely frustrated me that now that the mike sands the ultimate reveal on him of his untimely demise soon after kind of made me laugh I, the details surrounding his death on choking on deli meat in a grocery store and then we cut to alfred on his floor getting out kids toys to sort of lay out a blueprint of the grocery store and where the deli counter was and which way Mike would have entered. And that is just so bizarre and so senseless. And then he throws a hissy fit after he does it. He doesn't want to do it again or something and like throws the toys across the room. And it is strange. You're absolutely right that he, Alfred seems unwilling to be a participant in his own movie. It's like he he relishes the attention that he's getting, but yet doesn't want to be the center of it at the same time, which I understand. But yet, that's what you signed up for sort of thing. The way I described this to somebody was you've got a documentary essentially about two people, one who's dead and one who doesn't want a documentary made about him. And one who may may have wished he were dead at certain points. Yeah. Or maybe DeVore isn't dead after all. Could be, and this is his greatest effort yet. Another thing that got me was DeVore's widow. Uh, Wendy, is that her name? First of all, we meet her. I guess Alfred has been speaking to her online just by email or Skype or something like that. And she invites him to from England to... California to investigate, which is strange. (laughs) And the fact that she just welcomes this guy into her home when he knocks on the door is strange. Uh, The grocery store scene where the two of them are in a grocery store and he offers to get her a Diet Coke or something like that and sprints off uh, is strange. And then uh, toward the end of the film, she's pissed at him. And unleashes this very brief tirade on him on the way to the airport. But we don't see what led up to that. We don't see anything after that. It is so frustrating. It's like, where did all the details go? Where is the context? We have none of it. And they know how to use on-screen titles to give us a little bit more information on occasion. (laughs) Absolutely. Does the book go into any more about Wendy and what how that fell apart or what, what happened there? See, that that is incredibly frustrating as well. I keep saying frustrating, but I don't know of another word that fits better than that. There's a lot of moments where you feel like you're just hitting your head against a wall watching this. Like, why am I watching this? But at the same time, it's not a bad movie. I did the hour or so I spent watching it. I was fairly engaged. But also pissed. <laughs> it's like every other scene. It would it would 
upset me and then hook me back and do something to piss me off and then get me in again. And it's, it's not the best way to watch a film, but you know what? I mean, at least I didn't get bored. And there are moments where they get kind of like artsy fartsy, like him shooting stuff in the reflection in the tea kettle and stuff. I was like, uh, okay, I guess I see what you're going for. But then, yeah, there's just like manufactured paranoia, like the friend who's over and, you know, it's like, oh, well, he can't work on this anymore. He has children, you know, they might be in danger. And it's like, why are you guys so afraid? You know, at least again, give us that. Like Alfred has children. They're showing the front of his house. They're showing him walking down the street. He lives. (laughs) They're showing the car he drives. They're showing where he works. It's just so inconsistent. Yeah, there's mentions of like people trying to pretty much like scare Wendy off of things and the things that she experienced after Gary went missing. But again, that's like 1997 into 98. It's like we don't see anything that's happening in 2012, 2013. So it's like, what, is there any reason why these guys are so paranoid about stuff? It definitely does feel manufactured. And again, it goes back to the the point that I brought up toward the beginning of this episode where Alfred says, hey, I'm going to investigate this and find some huge story. It's almost like it's manufactured from the start. Like, how do you know there was anything to find? Maybe it's just a guy who, you know, drove off a bridge one night. It doesn't seem that far-fetched from the way they describe it and show the scene and show the animation that the investigators, the real investigators, uh, conducted. It doesn't, I, I don't see why it's so difficult to believe that he accidentally went off that thing and that no one saw it because it was in the middle of the night or whatever. Do they talk about the black helicopters? I don't believe they do. I want to say I read that somewhere after the fact when I went looking for more information on this, but I I don't think they did mention black helicopters. I may be wrong. That would have been something as well to also help with the paranoia is that allegedly there was a black helicopter that was down the river and was taking photographs. And one of the, the cameramen took video of that but then it was lost slash destroyed Ooh, who knows there were way too many like like as i'm listening to the book i don't know i like maybe a year ago i think a year and a half ago i listened to the secret it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch- 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 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Good history of Twin Peaks, which takes all of these conspiracy theories and just kind of winds them all together and plops them all inside of Twin Peaks. Like that's the center of, you know, it's like the Bermuda Triangle of the Pacific Northwest. And as I'm listening to Alfred reading his book, I'm just like, this just seems like there's a whole lot of stuff. And they're not even making the connections that Major Briggs made when he was writing the Black Dossier. You know, there's nothing that's really connecting this stuff. I was like, yeah, give me more to this. I'm just, it feels like there's coincidences, but they all just feel like coincidences. They don't necessarily feel like, you know, it's like me you know, Justin losing the Shadow Stevens and me having a bad Shadow Stevens uh, recording. Those literally are coincidences. There's nothing nefarious going on there. And they don't even do a good job of like, here's all of these coincidences that happened around this Gary DeVore case. And how weird is this? Or are they? Dun, dun, dun. Claudia Christian, uh, the actress, was one of DeVore's wives. And she's featured i don't know why other than to bring some star power into this because she doesn't have anything to offer she doesn't shed any light um i don't know i just feel like the whole the whole thing is a missed opportunity but i don't know i'm not sure who to blame on that because it seems like west away somewhere at some point during the film moves focus from divorce to Alfred, it's kind of subtle. I got to give him that. It, it's it's not like a, a whiplash sort of situation where you're like, wait, what just happened? It's not until you start thinking about it that you realize the whole perspective has shifted. And then uh, the ending. Oh, I remember now what I was going to say earlier about manufactured early in the film where Alfred takes Westaway up the path to this fake castle front in a field and treats it like it is just this huge metaphor, important with a capital I underlined, bold, etc. And like, this is the, the, he's like striking his thesis before he even has a theory completed. And then the way they return to it at the end just made me laugh. What I'm kind of curious how that ending struck you. And you can spoil it, but if you want. But I, I was so taken aback by it that I, I just was. I had to rewind and watch it again. And that ending is the same for both the fifty-five minute version and the seventy-minute version. And I'm still, I'm dying of curiosity for what the, you know, the longer cut, the hot docs version of it was. You know, was that on there as well? Because yeah, that ending is just, it's ridiculous. And I mean, I. You can read it so many different ways, um, but my God, talk about undermining your own credibility to show up to your own documentary. And I even watched it a second time, or I listened to it. I didn't watch it, because to see a grown man dressed up in this clown outfit, giving you know, giving his ending spiel, I was just like, what if I don't watch it and I just listen to him, but I couldn't get over the fact that he was just they're dressed as a clown 
it was icing on the cake. You know, he did say, I'm here to destroy my credibility. And he sure did, except actually I would say he would have if he had established credibility from the start. And I don't think he did. Just just because he says at the beginning, uh, or maybe Westaway says it for him, that the government rewrites Hollywood scripts to make them look like the good guy. Therefore, everything you're about to hear, you should believe is true. I, I don't buy it at all. I, Alfred has no credibility with me. I have read parts of his book uh, that you alerted me to. I can't remember the title. Real something. R-E-E-L. Where he investigates, quote unquote, the same sort of thing throughout films and gives all these examples of ways that they're manipulated by the government. I think it's bullshit. And the fact that they say that the government makes them rewrites these scripts to make them look like the hero, that inherently is false because there are so many movies in which the government does not look like the hero. They look like the opposite. They look like the bureaucrats, the incompetent. Uh, they're the villain in several movies. High, you know, as high profile as the ones that they show here as examples. And I just think that I just think the whole thing is flawed from the start and never, not only never establishes itself as being credible in any way, but really makes no effort beyond that to gain any credibility. It starts at a low bar and stays there, if not goes underneath it. Yeah, the name of his book was Real Power, Hollywood Cinema, and American Supremacy. I just did an interview with uh, Rudiger Schuschlen, who did um, From Caligari to Hitler, and then Hitler's Hollywood. And so we're talking about you know real master manipulation of movies and propaganda and these kind of things, all the way from like, you know, the mountain films to judge to uh, the eternal Jew. And it's like, okay, yeah, that is masterful propaganda. I would have liked to have had, yeah, even five minutes of these are real clear cut examples of the U S government coming in and rewriting scripts and forcing people to do things in order to make them look better. I mean, I've heard stories of, the government didn't want to give us their helicopters because, you know, we were treating, you know, the, the military negatively. So we had to shoot around it or those kind of things. Absolutely. I understand that. I mean, you know, what you want to loan your football team to, uh, uh, you know, the last boy scout. I mean, yeah, you don't want to necessarily do that. Right. <laughs> so give me those other examples. Give me the ones that we don't think about. We don't know about. I mean, of course, something like a black Hawk down or something, you're going to be like, Oh yeah, of course there was military involvement in something like that. But I don't know. T talk to me about something else. You know, even, I mean, God, Michael Bay is such a rah-rah guy for the U.S. military. Of course they're going to be involved in his films. But give me something I don't know about. Give me something else that we might not even think about that we probably should be thinking about. Right. Exactly. It continually throws out an idea and doesn't back it up with anything concrete. And I feel bad, like, tearing into... I won't even say I'm tearing into Westway because I think he was trying to do the best that he could with a very ornery subject. And I, I liked Alfred's book, the writer with no hands, because it is very much a warts and all kind of coverage of the story. And it's really more kind of the 
the making of the story than it is about the story itself sometimes. And he'll even get into, like, I didn't like what William was doing, and I was insisting on this and that and the other thing. But he doesn't get into it too much. So I, I would have liked – I mean, a documentary about the making of this documentary is almost in order. I agree. And I'm with you, too. I don't want to knock West away either because, I mean, ultimately what I want is to see a longer version of this that gives more context, that shows more of the before and the after of what he chose to put on screen. You know, I don't believe that the camera wasn't on when Wendy started this tirade going to the airport. There had to be ramp up to that and there had to be a very uncomfortable goodbye after that that I would have loved to have seen that goes for so many scenes in the film that I just, I just feel like there's not enough meat on the bones to throw another metaphor out. there. Yeah. And this is a minor complaint, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I'm a complete idiot. I was having a lot of trouble just because I'm, you know, with a, a Yahoo from the Midwest, I was having trouble discerning who was talking sometimes because there's a lot of times where we don't see who's actually talking and i'm just like is that matthew or is that william and they have very distinctive voices but they both have and i'll probably get into trouble with this they have somewhat similar accents obviously they're not from the midwest so their voices would blend together sometimes and i'd just be like who is that talking I didn't have that problem, but I do agree that they have very similar voices. I was able to distinguish, or at least I think I was, who was speaking. And normally you could tell just by what they were saying, but there were times where it's just like, now who said that? And I, you know, I'd like to know more about their relationship too. Like, don't just leave it at, hey, this guy wanted a filmmaker and he found me on Facebook. Well, how'd that conversation go? <laughs> What convinced him to get on board? What did he see? Was did did Westaway see something entirely different, or did he enter this project knowing that he was going to do what he ultimately did? Well, I can shine a little bit of light on that when it comes to the interview that I did, and I do have to apologize. I'm going to play that here in a second. I have to apologize. I was. <laughs> I was speaking to William Westaway. He took time out from a picnic that he was doing with his family. And it wasn't an outdoor picnic. It was an indoor picnic. People who are listening to this podcast may or may not know this, but right now Europe is going through a major heat wave and it was super hot out where he was. So he stepped outside and talked to me on a cell phone. So it was me here in Detroit talking to a poor guy over in England on the cell phone while it was, you know, 30, maybe even 40 degrees Celsius over there. And he was just dying and the signal was dying as well. So I'm going to try to cut around those signal losses as much as I possibly can, but I do want to apologize for that. Fortunately, the audio quality with Matthew Alford is a lot better. So let's go ahead play both of those interviews and I will introduce the interviews because you know I had trouble discerning the voices so <laughs> so I will make sure people know that Westaway's first and Alfred is second so let's go ahead take a break play a few words from our sponsors and we'll be right back with those interviews Hello from Cinema Detroit 
We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast all about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gory the Ghoul could make up. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. 
So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies, every Tuesday. All right, folks, welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear from director William Westaway. And in case you weren't paying attention earlier, I apologize for the sound quality of this, but there were extenuating circumstances. Hopefully you can listen and enjoy. Tell me, how did you get involved with filmmaking? I do at the University of a small place called, called Torquay in Devon. Um, it's in the south of England. I basically saw a film going uh, being filmed in Torquay called Black Ball. It was directed by Mel Smith. It was a comedy, I reckon probably about in the early 2000s. And I went down and watched in my local town. And I, apparently, I was, I was about 17 or 18 at the time. And apparently I came back to my mother and said, I've decided I'm going to be a filmmaker because it just looks so fun. So after that, um, my sister was involved in television. So there was always a spare camera lying around at the house. And I was... I used to steal it and uh, make films about various things. Um, and my summer jobs from the ages of 17, 18, 19, 20, 22, whilst I was in and out, I used to go back to my hometown in Torquay and I used to make films for various local companies. I, I used to have summer jobs and I would make films for the, the person I worked for because it was kind of before the internet. So no one really had films for businesses. So to a certain extent, I rode the crest of that wave and kind of fell into it to a certain extent. I, you know, I had all the enthusiasm and I just wanted to make films wherever I could. So I ended up making films for language schools, for a local model village, um, and all kinds of things like that, really. Tell me about your movie, uh, The Also Rants. In my early 20s, uh, I used to work with a writer and we write loads of comedy um, and we got involved with some like uh, grassroots schemes, a channel called uh, a channel called Channel 4 in the UK, which was quite a big thing at the time. And we basically got in amongst some, you know, some commissioning editors. And it was a really big deal for us at the time. Um, and we very nearly missed out on a commission that would have really jettisoned our career really high. But in the process of doing that, we ended up making a couple of shows and they were only ever pilots. I mean, we wrote the entire series and I think we actually filmed two or three episodes, but we only actually made one pilot that was properly considered to be uh, commissioned. So it was never actually made properly. Um, it was just kind of like a, a passion project that got under the noses of the right people that kind of fell at the last hurdle to a certain extent. How did you meet uh, Matthew Alford? Matthew Alford was an old schoolfriend of my sister and I kind of met him a few times when I was young but I never really knew it was him and I didn't really speak to him and then years went by and uh, my sister mentioned 
uh, I can't remember where we were. My sister mentioned that he was working on a new project and was a maker. It was about 25, 26 at the time. And I'd done a lot of corporate work and I dabbled in documentary and I'd made some small TV things that really not planned. And I thought, well, what, why, what's it about? I, I kind of heard through the grapevine that he was quite an eccentric And she said, it's about some conspiracy theory. And I said, wow, that sounds cool. Um, tell him I'm interested. And then the next thing you know, I'm meeting up with him a few weeks later at a local pub. And he told me the dark, sinister story of what happened to Gary Vaughan. And it sounds very dangerous and extremely interesting. And I was pretty much hooked straight away. I'm not very good with years. I think that was back in 2010, maybe 2009. So there was, he, when, when he told me about the project, I was like, wow, this sounds really cool. And there was, there was a good few years, was it years, maybe two years of umming and ahhing and hearing the story develop and going to meet him and filming with his family and filming with him and filming him looking into the case. It kind of became real when he said, I think we're going to go to LA. And, uh, and that was it really and then the next thing you know it's, it's all happening now you have to help me out here I, the version of the film that i watched isn't even an, an hour long and i think there's at right, least three, minutes yeah there's like at least three cuts out there yes how does that happen because it was a speculative project and we had no money i basically the entire film on my own i was shooting it i edited it with no support from anyone with no money so the process was certainly and took a lot longer than than anyone would have wanted, really. And what happened was, is well, when we got back from LA, I was, you know, I'm trying to hold down a job, and kind of, I was editing it in my spare time. And we eventually got to a point where I don't think I could have really taken it a lot further without some real money being spent on it. Like, for example, we didn't really have a proper sound, sound like, we didn't have a track mix, we didn't have a proper sound. We, it was, it was rough. It was, there, was, there was not a lot more I could do with it. So the idea was that I was like, well, what do I do? And I, I was knocking on commissioners' doors, and we weren't really getting anywhere. And I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to send it into a good festival. So I sent it to, a, to Hot Docs in, in Toronto. And the next thing you know, I couldn't believe it, but it got accepted. So I was like, that's absolutely great. So to a certain extent, that was in 2013. So in 2014, it, it showed at Hot Docs which was great, absolutely brilliant. But in my eyes, it was always going to be a rough cut. And after Hot Docs, despite getting loads of great positive comments and we were all in it and it was brilliant, I was obviously really in debt after spending loads of money on this film. And I really, really wanted someone or, you know, some kind of money back. So I had a tremendous amount of debt and I was really desperate for a deal. And that deal just never came. And I put that down to the fact the film was so rough. At the time, at the same time, me and Matt were going through a bit of a rocky period. Some traumatic things happened in the film. And it caused us to have a bit of an argument and a huge disagreement about where the film should go, as it was. And he went one way and I went the other way. So it kind of all fell to pieces after Hot Docs. So how does the 2017 version come about? It came about because I wanted to re-edit it into a more polished TV-friendly version that didn't have so much information in it because, to be honest with you, the 2014 version was quite an art, an arty, an arty version. It was quite—it's difficult to describe, but there was a lot of information in it. The, the target audience, was, to a certain extent, people that kind of knew a little bit about the, the Gary Devore mystery, which was stupid, really, because nobody did. 
Um, and it just wasn't very TV friendly. It wasn't really very friendly for your average Joe who might just flick over the channel and start watching it. So we had to try and not dumb it, dumb it down a little bit in terms of make the pace better so that people can understand what's going on as opposed to the kind of shock tactics of the 2014. You know, I, I think some people said that after the 2000, 2014 version, you know, they felt a little bit like they'd been hit by a car because there was so much stuff going on. You know, you had to really, really pay attention to understand what was going on. It must have been tough for you to revisit your work and take out so much stuff. I know, like, Haskell Wexler isn't even in the 2017 version. So it must have been kind of rough to to lose a lot of these. To be honest, it was the darkest times of my entire life, honestly. Basically, the edit process originally, when I did the 2014 version, was horrible. It lasted 18 months at least. And I was, you know, very much alone and really trying to make a, the best of a bad situation. I spent, oh, I, I don't even want to know how many hours I spent on it. I was, I was honestly staying up until three in the morning every night, Sundays, Saturdays, you know, beavering away on trying to make something. To have to go back to that, to re-edit it, to do another version was just hell. The big problem that we always had was that me and Matt pretty much fell out in around 2012 um, after Michael Sands died because it was just such a shock. And we were, we, it kind of hit us like a freight train to a certain extent because we didn't really know how significant it was and whether or not it should change the direction of where the film was going, how much we should try to emphasize it or not emphasize it, or are we trying to put our own opinions in the film and, and dupe the audience, or are we just being honest? I mean, there were so many questions, and we didn't really know the answers to it. And no disrespect to Matt, but he's not really a, a filmmaker. Not, not, not that I really was that much at the time. But it was just a very difficult balancing act. How did you decide to actually become part of the story, to become part of the documentary? I was really paranoid about looking egocentric, and the last thing I wanted to do was appear in the film, despite the fact. It started with, oh, well, I'm going to have to do it. Basically, I know that I was, a, I was a nobody, no backing, nobody behind me, no support, and we were venturing into this world that was you know, potentially very dangerous, and I just wanted the audience to know that, if you get what I mean. I'm still confused as far as, like, what did I actually see? Because the one I saw isn't even an hour long. Yeah, what did you think? Yeah, you are in it. It ends with Matt yeah. in a clown costume juggling. And it feels very abbreviated. It feels like the end of the movie just shows up all of a sudden. Yeah, okay. So you watch the 55-minute version to a certain extent. That film was, I don't, wanna, I don't know how you're going to use all this, <laughs> this. I feel a bit like you've been cheated a little bit. Basically, what you watched was the 55-minute version that was condensed-down version that was the final, this is what it is. This is the best account of basically what happened in 55 minutes. And the reason why it's 55 minutes is because we were advised that if we made it 55 minutes long, then we would have a much better chance of, of, of offloading it or making some of the... 30 or 40,000 pounds back that we spent on it. And the version that you saw was 55 minutes, and that was trimmed down from about 70 minutes. And it's just got a lot of information stripped out of it to a certain extent, just so people can just digest it better. I mean, it is bewildering, and I just feel that people need to look at the basic bare facts and really get their head around what happened rather than bombard them with too much information. And, and some of it, it gets lost by the wayside. What is the 
the plan for the documentary? Is it ever going to come out on DVD, Blu-ray, any of those kind of things? It's been such an emotional roller coaster. I mean, we we were invested into it. It feels like a relationship that went really wrong. I was really invested in it. Matt was really invested in it. The film was just, the whole story was so good. And we spe- I must have spent, what, I don't know, nine, eight years of my life worrying about it and doing stuff on it. Yeah, and now, it, I mean, it does, it does get to a point where you're like, oh, I just don't care anymore. I just don't I'm gonna have to put stuff behind you at some point. You know, otherwise you will actually go insane. So now, well, we've signed a deal with a distributor who's trying to sell the version to basically anyone um, in some kind of really recoup some of our losses. But I'm not really, I'm orientated. I don't care about money. With you, I just want people to see it. But it's just the whole process has made me realize that it's your film that you've been so passionate about under the noses of people, unless you've got a big budget to pay people, you know, like pay advertising, pay billboards, you know, pay for IMDB adverts. I do that. It's actually very difficult to get bills from anyone. And, you know, you you can live in a in a fantasy world and think that, you know, oh, this film's so we don't need advertising. It's to get somewhere. But it's realistic. It's a bit like I read the other day a viral video, a video going viral. The idea of a video, any video going viral, is is really an inaccurate. It's a myth, basically, because in order to make a video go viral, you still have to make sure the right bloggers watch it, make sure you seed it in some certain websites, make sure you pass it around to certain people so that it gets shared in a certain way and then it will eventually go viral. But there still needs to be all that kind of background to cover work to push your video into in front of an audience. And I just feel a bit like because we never had the resources to do that, I just don't think it would would go anywhere. I mean, word of mouth is strong, but it's only so strong. While you're working on this project, how are you supporting yourself? What else are you working on at the time? So basically, I, the, the majority of my work was just corporate work. I was making pro companies, tutorial videos. Um, a lot of my work is in uh, – I, I, I'm hired by marketing agencies to do video projects for their existing clients. Um, you know, like, oh, they've done their logo and they've done their branding. Or they need a video to show off their offices or whatever. You know? So I was working pretty much straight through the whole time I was on the project doing just corporate work. When you're dealing with a case like this, is there ever a danger of you starting to feel overly paranoid? Oh, 100%, yes. I mean, it's a tricky one. I went through phases of being extremely scared. Then suddenly, no, this is absolutely fine. What are you talking about? You know, you give yourself a slap in the face. Go, no, it's absolutely fine. What? It's just all But yeah, I felt worried numerous times. It was just on and off all the time. You think, oh, am I being stupid? You know, but then, oh, hang on a minute. You think, oh, they said that, they said that, and you're like, well, hang on, this is, this is these are you're talking about here, you know, like how 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 bad can this get? And having Matt with me didn't help because he was also very paranoid, and he kind of moves in circles where he speaks to a lot of experts, and you know, when you've got someone relatively renowned in their in their field telling you that, oh yeah, it's fact, oh yeah, the CIA have got a three a three pronged and, you know, like the first thing they do is like scare you from a car. Second thing they do is try and uh, basically meet you to tell you to do something. And then the third thing they do is oh, they bump you off. You're like, really? Is that what well, kind of makes sense? I mean, I mean, it sounds really pathetic now, 
But the worst part of the entire process for me was I was alone in my office and we'd just finally been accepted in Hotdocs. And I felt really like, oh, great, this is really good. And we'd had a website made and basically the website was um, went online and I visited it only to see that it had been blocked. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Why has it been blocked? So I, I just didn't think anything of it and rang the web website hosting guy. I was like, oh, why is it blocked? And he was like, well, that's weird. It shouldn't be blocked. So he's basically traced the blocking address. I don't really understand websites. So he said, oh, it's been blocked by, a, by, a, by, by an IP address in, in America. And I was like, oh, that's weird. That's weird. And then, and then he started saying stuff like, because the, the the activity log is the stuff on here that I haven't been doing. I was like, oh my god, this is really freaking me out. And he was like, oh, don't worry, I'll try and sort it. And I came off the phone, sat there like this website, my website that has been this website is blocked. And I was like, oh my god, is is this really? Am I being paranoid or is this something? Is something happening here? But do you know, as little and as pathetic as it sounds, as as, as it could have been nothing, right? But I was sat there and I completely reconsidered my entire life. I was like. Oh, what have you done? You know, what have you done? Is it really worth pissing off government entities or, or, or people who are a lot more powerful and more influential than you? Is it really worth pissing, pissing these people off for the sake of your own skin? Do you know what I mean? And I just sat there and thought, it really isn't. And I would have done anything there and then to take everything I'd done. And I know it sounds pathetic. It sounds stupid, but it's just a, it's just a website. I mean, like the first thing I did was take a photo of it and upload it to our Twitter page, which incidentally I'm really rubbish at Twitter. I don't really know how it works. I was like, there we go. If I get bumped off now, at least people have seen that my website's been blocked and it's really suspicious circumstances and hopefully that will deter anyone from, you know, potentially making me be involved in a convenient car accident, you know? And that's the kind of, that's the kind of way your brain works when you're involved with something like this. And you can say me now, do I feel in danger now? I'd say no, not, not in the slightest because if I would, you know, I'd be dead by now if it was, really serious but i don't know well what are you working on these days since 2014 i started working with a guy uh who's an ex nasa scientist who works on the pyramids and stuff and he's trying to solve three million he's trying to um find three million dollars of gold that's hidden in the Rockingtons in new mexico or colorado Basically, it's a crazy old man called Forrest Fenn who's done a who wrote a poem. And if you can solve the nine clues that are hidden in the poem, you can pretty much walk straight up to a three million dollar chest of gold. Um, so I'm currently making a documentary about him that has been. I think this is my fourth or fifth year on it, and I'm only going to actually make the documentary and edit it properly if he actually finds it. I don't want another film where I spend seven or eight years of my life without a completely certain ending. You know, I don't want to do one of these character journeys where, oh, yeah, he didn't find it, but he learned this. You know, I'm not interested in that. I want to, oh, he spent five or six years looking for it. And there is, wow, cool. Uh, I think I've been scarred from a previous projects where there isn't a building that people can really grab onto. It was really galling in The Writer With No Hands not to be able to have a resolute ending. You know, this happened. This didn't happen, you know? And it's just like, all you can do is just say the stuff that you've learned and present it and say, look, this is exactly what, this is what happened to us on our journey. You make of it what you will. I mean, like, it seems a bit of a pop-out, but you don't really have a lot of choice, really. And I think, I don't know, you can, people, people say to me now, they, they, I, they always say, oh, what do you really think happened? And I can honestly say, over the course of these years, I have completely in one of the endings completely utterly for at least two or three months and then you got the idea and think oh that couldn't have happened and now 
I've got no idea. You put a gun to my head now and said, well, I haven't have a clue. It's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm up to be sure of things, you know, and, and if I'm not sure, I'll commit to answer. William, thank you so much for your time today. Next, we have an interview with author Matthew Alford. How did you get interested in writing about movies and politics and their intersection? I began by studying a degree in politics and then realized that the actual representation of, uh, of politics is just as interesting as politics itself because basically the representation is a manipulation done by those same powerful institutions. Um, whether that's corporate institutions or um, political institutions like the Department of Defense or whatever. So it struck me that a closer examination of how um, movies were uh, and TV shows were manipulated for political ends would be uh, would be a really good extension of um, what I'd done in terms of studying politics as an under- undergraduate. So I just got slowly into that I, uh, after doing a master's as well. Um, so I made a film project that uh, that related to that that looked at um uh that used news footage uh, and kind of cut it together in a sort of subversive way to um uh criticize american nuclear weapons policy western nuclear weapons policy um and then moved into doing this doctorate uh which was about uh, applying noam, Chom- noam chomsky's ideas about the media to uh to cinema no one really done that before because a lot of people talk about the news as a um you know, as a, con- as a construction um, designed for the benefit of, uh, of powerful entities. But it's, that's done much less in when it comes to entertainment, things like cinema. There, there seems to be a, an important uh, niche there. I mean, there's a lot of material on film studies, for example. There's a huge you know, literature discipline of film studies. But if you look at what film studies is, it, it doesn't often deal with how power is used um, and how power is represented. Um, in cinema or indeed in the um, entertainment industry more broadly. That seemed to be a quite a big area that was neglected. Um, so that's how, we, that's how I ended up getting into looking at the intersection between politics and cinema in particular. Uh, and then eventually developing this idea, this, this group of films called National Security Cinema, which are these movies that tend to have a considerable amount of support direct support in the production process by the Department of Defense or other national security organizations and also tend to very much promote uh, national security themes um, for the benefit of their institutional backers. That seems like something like a Black Hawk Down or even Enemy of the State, perhaps. You know, you're, you're going to get support from the military and you can see it's almost obvious how much the the military has had input on some of these kind of things or or state security has had on these things what are some of the more i guess for lack of a better term insidious instances of a film where there there's an agenda under there that we're not necessarily seeing as as plain as day you you just mentioned enemy of state i mean that's not a bad example because of something being quite insidious because there was no indication when that film first came out that it was um, supported by any national security 
organizations in the production process. In fact, most people took that movie starring Will Smith as being very much critical of, uh, of a kind of surveillance society. Actually, we find out many years later, I think it was in someone's PhD thesis, you know, obscure, no one's read it. Actually, Enemy of the State was, uh, there was some form of supervision by the NSA in this case, fairly unusually. One of the things that the NSA did, from the little that we know from the documentation, is try to make sure that, that the film wasn't systematically criticizing the NSA. Rather, it was showing that there was this rogue group of uh, of NSA baddies who were um, conducting the illegal surveillance. So rather than uh, a criticism of the institution as a whole, um, they felt that they were able to exert some kind of um, uh, control over the script to um, to prevent it from being as seriously political as it could very easily have been. Um, so that's pretty insidious, I'd say. Other examples are sometimes actually where there is not government involvement, um, and I don't know if insidious is quite the, quite, quite the right word, uh, but some films can be just as kind of dangerous or misleading in a way as, um, as films that have had deliberate manipulation from political forces. So some of even, say, well-meaning films that I would say are anti-war films, like Three Kings, for example, um, the David O. Russell movie with um, George Clooney, a uh, really good movie, really well made. Uh, you know, seems to have got you know good, heart, heart, humane heart to it. But actually, the whole film, because it's about the um, the first Gulf War in 1991, is uh, kind of suggesting that actually uh, some form of humanitarian intervention in Iraq would have been a good idea in the 1990s. Uh, and of course, that fed into narratives that um, that actually it would be good to go in with a benevolent um, iron fist, if I can put it like that, uh, and take over Baghdad. Um, now, I don't think that was David O. Russell's intention, but you know, the, the logic of the movie itself was doing that. And it's quite interesting. He, uh, I don't know if you've read the, um, my comment on this in, uh, uh, in the book, but David O. Russell was at some kind of fundraiser in 1999, um, you know, a year or so before Bush got in, but met W. Bush and said, I'm making a film that challenges the legacy of your father in Iraq. Um, and Bush just, and you know, he thought he was kind of winning the argument, if you like. And then Bush just turned around to him and said, you know, well, we'll have to see if we can change all that then. Um, and, uh, you know, the logic of, the logic of the movie is basically saying, you know, we need to, we need to use the military force in more benevolent ways. That can lead to very dangerous outcomes as it did in 2003. I'm curious how you first got exposed to, Gary DeVore's work and to the actual, uh, his, his disappearance. I think pretty much everything that I've ever had to say about that was in the, um, in the book that I did. Um, and it's, uh, I think there was some kind of little article somewhere that, uh, that, that mentioned it. And then it led to, led to further work on that. There wasn't really ever very much out there, but we were able to piece together what there was, um, from various disparate sources, um, because there was a, a, there's a lot in the Los Angeles press, for example, but it never really been drawn together properly. I was hoping you would say you're a huge tracks fan and wanted to know more about the creator. Of that. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a um, yeah kind of underrated movie, um, 1988 movie produced by Gary DeVore, but with a lot of uh, chaos on set by the sound of it, um, from speaking to the. Um, the star of that movie and hearing a podcast that he 
did a little while ago. Um, uh, it sounded like Gary himself was pretty boozed up during the uh, the creation of the uh, of that particular project, which is very. I mean, I guess you've seen it, have you? The, that movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> have you actually done a podcast about? We I'm have. Sure yes, yes, we have. I think I know the one. Yes, it's, I'm, yeah, I'm now. I'm, try, I'm putting two and two together now. I think that was a, a, a terrific piece of work that you did there. I remember enjoying that very much. But yeah, I, no, it didn't happen to come from that. I mean, as you know, tracks almost had no d- distribution whatsoever. So uh, <laughs> uh, it just seemed like a complete mess. But I did come back to tracks later on and some of Gary's other work and sort of found his kind of very mischievous uh, fingerprints in those productions. Uh, tracks is a really good example of that. Um, so yeah, I, I like... I, uh, over over time, I increasingly liked Gary as a, as a person, a kind of sort of impish kind of character and creator, um, who I found really rather amusing. How soon after you read about the case did you say, "I want to write about this. I want to investigate this, and eventually, I want to write a book about this"? There was a bit of a delay. I mean, I, I think at the time I was writing a feature article for the Guardian newspaper. Uh, in Britain about the role of the CIA and Department of Defense in Hollywood. And because of that, uh, we wanted to get an additional, uh, you know, we wanted some kind of interesting a- aspect to, to that story so we could cover all, all bases and make it a bit dramatic. So I think we put in information about Gary's case in that. I think then there was a period after it where it didn't really do anything. But my life was all very chaotic at the time um, because of... I just had kids, and I sort of my my work was all over the place. I think I was kind of unemployed at, even at that point, um, and so I, I was a there was a lot of chaos basically in my life around that period, and then ongoing for um, for a few years. So I can't re- even remember that particularly well. But uh, eventually, I started to write, started to research more seriously about it. How did you come to the decision to document everything and actually make a movie out of it? I think it became inevitable because of knowing some of the key players in the case. Wendy DeVore, for example, I had the invitation to go out to Los Angeles. So it seemed, uh, it just seemed like a natural and logical progression to go and do that. And in doing so, it felt really important to have, uh, a visual documentation of it and rather than doing that on a sort of primitive uh, iPhone I thought it'd be important to get someone along um, with a with a proper camera who knew what they were doing and that's how Will Westaway got involved in the in that project I'm not trying to paint you as a uh, a lone figure out there investigating things you know like the uh, the journalist who's uh, banging down doors and stuff, but there is that perception of people who are looking for information about a case, you know, either whether it's a lone detective or a lone writer. How is it now when Will Westaway starts working with you and you have to consider that you've got another person with you and you're now tracking down these leads? Will was a, a real complication to the whole project. He didn't really understand, I don't think, what I was trying to do. And he was coming at it from a very sort of peculiar angle. Um, I think he was sort of trying to paint me as a very peculiar, kooky character rather than really taking the, the actual case seriously. 
Um, and Will's the kind of person who, he, he's very charming and very good fun. And I liked him even then. He, he for example, he doesn't, he can't, he can read, but he doesn't really read. Like, particularly at the time, he wouldn't read a message that was longer than a line long on an email, for example. So it's quite difficult to engage someone in a proper discussion about what to do when they won't actually read anything or pick up a phone. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a peculiar uh, figure to have on board. Can you walk me through the timeline? Because this is a, it's an interesting film to even look at on IMDb to see that there are the two versions out there, and then there's the third version that you sent to me. And I'm curious what the timeline was and why the decision to make these different versions. As far as I understood it, I I just wanted to get a visual record of what was happening, and I didn't really care about putting out a more substantive feature. Will was aiming for something much more grandiose and more involved and more constructed than, than I wanted to do, and... And then eventually, uh, yeah, the, well, as you can see from from the um, material that's already out there, I mean, the, the 2014 film came out, did very well at Hot Docs and various other festivals. Um, and then we abandoned that pr- project, I guess it must have been 2014, um, at the end of 2014. But Will still wanted to do this other version that was going to be t- going to come out. And then eventually, uh, the TV length version, I think, was because he found some kind of distributor or whatever. That's the one that's kind of more readily available. I mean, I just don't really know what's happening with the, the other versions. I, 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 it wasn't really something that I was, I was driving. It was more his, his thing. Can you tell me about the audiobook version? Because that's the version I've bought both the print and the audiobook and listened to that recently. And I'm curious the circumstances around the recording of that. At the end of the major phase of that, of the, the filmmaking phase, I kind of very quickly wrote the book because it all seemed to be there in my mind. It was quite straightforward to write. And I quite enjoyed the process of writing the book. And then, after that, I thought, well, it would be kind of funny to read the book out loud in nightclubs and just sort of see that as a project, a way of kind of getting on stage and doing something strange. And so I began for quite for, for several months. I read starting on page one. I'd do about 10 minutes each week, um, sometimes at two or three different venues. And each time I'd be like, well, okay, we, we finished off at page 143 last week we're going to carry on and we're going to get to page 157 um and so we so i'd do that uh for whatever it was a year or so um and then out of that idea of this kind of ridiculous thing of reading a book out in nightclubs i then thought that it would work to do a stage uh a, a full day's um recording so kind of equally stupid in its own way and that it's quite sort of exhausting and not very good for your throat. So I recorded from something like 10 o'clock in the morning, first, first off busking, and then in a recording studio, which took us up to about half past midnight, and just read constantly all day with professional equipment. That's why it sounds... A li- and we also had a little live audience as well of people who were just kind of interested, people who had tagged along with the project. And that's why, I mean, I don't know, if, I don't know how well it turned out. It might have a bit of a rough and live feel at times. I think it was, I think it was 
was fine, but um, it was basically all recorded in a day with a few other little bits and pieces from the previous, from the nightclub, um, from the nightclub times where I captured pieces of footage there. And so that was the idea behind that. And uh, we were also looking at, as part of that, it was part of a, a discussion about how how politics can be uh, discussed within a community, particularly a community that's not ostensibly interested in international politics. So we had a bit of a discussion around their sort of focus group about whether that form of um, putting, informa- putting political information out into a community can actually... Um, kind of heighten people's awareness of those kind of issues so we sort of had a whole day basically of like just focusing on what what the project was and what good it could do and how audiences respond and all that kind of thing and uh and we recorded the whole the whole day as well and there was quite a few costumes and things like that we had a band as well uh and the idea was that i'd always for the for the nightclub things in particular there would be you know if anyone was there um with a guitar or a drum or a a triangle or a piano or whatever I'd get them I'd ask them if they would come up with it and improvise music to go along with it so it's kind of just a sort of way of getting more into um, performance and doing something that uh, was organic and sort of interesting and entertaining for the people who were there at the time and then that led whether you call it directly or indirectly but that um, that led to me doing much being much more serious about doing stand-up comedy um and although i had done a little bit of comedy performance in the mid-2000s as part of a double act i'd abandoned that for over 10 years so i felt like i was kind of coming back to that through the sort of peculiar path of the writer with no hands i don't know if you you take the piss out of the documentary or out of yourself at the end when you're dressed up as a clown and i was curious what the thought process was there i think really mike that's one to leave open to interpretation but i definitely think having thought about what i did there i definitely think that there that's two interpretations of it i think there are multiple interpretations and um exactly what was going through my mind for it i don't know really but it's, uh, i think the um I, I i think it was a fitting way to conclude the project anyway I hope that that was a, a nice way of doing it that uh, that was right for um, at least for for most viewers. Well, with any project that you work on, be it a book, be it a film, be it whatever, it's always very difficult to put things to bed, and you're always, I, at least for me, I'm always seeing echoes of things, and I'm curious, are have you put the the writer with no hands to bed? Have you moved on to other things now? You might be interested to know I'm doing a kind of uh, sort of a, a, a fictional sort of spin-off thing from it. Which I, I haven't committed to what the name of it will be yet, but there, there's something that will come out of that uh, that kind of world, I think, which might be quite good fun. Um, as for Right With No Hands itself, there's going to be some kind of stage uh, production which kind of ties in with the comedy work that I've been doing. Um so, I mean, I'm very happy to talk to you about that, but at the moment it's a little bit amorphous and I'd rather not, I don't really want to say what it is and then it, then it not turn out to be like that. It'd be a bit misleading for you and your, uh, your listeners, but, but there's going to be something to do with it. There'll be some kind of stage thing that I'm hoping to do, at least around Britain. And, um, there's some kind of book 
uh, sort of fictional book project that will come out of it as well. That I think that people will be interested in if they like uh, Right With No Hand. How about yourself? Are you back to uh, teaching or are you continuing to write or what's going on with that, that portion of your life? Well, as, with, as it's been for several years for me now, things picked up a little bit for me after the, uh, as, the, as that particular project was um, winding down. Um, I'm, doing, I'm working at loads of different uh, colleges and universities. Uh, I have uh, employment, it's all a little bit sketchy. And I teach lots of different subjects, film and politics and media and sociology and all these kind of things. I was curious, you, you have specialized for so many years in propaganda, and I'm curious as far as what are you seeing now as far as some of the propaganda films? I mean, we have filmmakers like Steve Bannon, Dinesh D'Souza out there making movies, which are blatant propaganda. Do you have any other, I guess the word favorites isn't a good one, but any, anyone else that you're kind of keeping an eye on as far as good, hearty uh, propaganda that's being produced these days? I'll just answer your question in a slightly broader term, which is to say that last year I wrote a book which was based on several thousand pages of documentation that hadn't been seen before. The book's called National Security Cinema. I wrote with Tom Secker, and Tom keeps a large archive of this material on his website, which he gets through the Freedom of Information Act request, particularly to the Department of Defense, but also to some of the others, FBI, CIA, and so on. And we were able to establish that uh, something like 10 times more entertainment products had been affected um, by the security state, than, um, including the military, predominantly the military, than the, than the scholarly literature had previously suggested. So I think that was quite a big and important set of findings that, uh, that Tom and I um, picked out from government documentation. There were some nice examples, for, uh, like uh, Hulk, it was always a good one. Uh, Iron Man as well. Hulk was interesting because the 2003 movie where um, they, uh, the Department of Defense apologized to the Hollywood producers that it was uh, writing back to because it said, look, we've, made, we've had to make so many changes to this script. Uh, we're, we're sorry, it's too much. Kind of. So, I mean, that's an indication of where sometimes at least the Department of Defense can have a huge impact on uh, on a production, um, but yeah, I mean it's the, it's the major movies. I mean, even sort of eight years ago, we kind of knew that they were involved with Transformers and Iron Man and all that kind of thing. But we we're able to um, identify particularly TV shows where the Department of Defense has been all over those productions. Uh, something like um, before about 2005, there'd only been about 100 or so TV shows that had ever been worked on by the DoD in its history, you know, several decades. But there's been about 900 or so TV titles affected since 2005. So there's a huge escalation in military involvement in uh, in television, um, television entertainment. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that's fairly cursory, courtesy support. But um, but the the big changes are, are still being made to uh, to some productions. Uh, so yeah, kind of. Propaganda is such a funny word, really. I don't really use it very often um, because it kind of implies, although there's a kind of strict dictionary definition, I think it also implies intention, deliberate desire to mislead, um, kind of structural um, misdirection, uh, and all those kind of other 
uh, uh, other aspects to, to the word. So, I mean, you can call it kind of quasi-propaganda or manipulation or but whatever it is, it's, uh, whatever is, whatever you want to call it, I think certainly the fact that those, that, that is done in the dark is uh, with very little accountability, um, very poor uh, documentation, and to at least you know, in this very poor documentation for several decades, except for uh, until Tom and I received this material in 2015, 16, 17, just not ever really been treated very well by scholarship as far as I'm concerned. Earlier this year, I went to a university library in Washington, D.C. to try and track down um, the major physical archive of, uh, of this material, uh, but where the you know, correspondence between the DOD and, uh, and Hollywood producers. But the, um, a lot of the documentation was missing, and uh, it's hard to know exactly the motivation for um, whoever... Uh, remove that material but you know we've lots of films things like independence day and like you say black hawk down and uh where you know those files are still in that uh, in that collection in that archival collection um but the actual correspondence um is often incomplete or just not there at all um so that's quite interesting you know for one reason or another um per people or person person or persons has um, kind of gutted a lot of the, the evidence that surrounds the propaganda apparatus uh, in the entertainment community. Uh, and we're able to you know, acquire a lot of the more recent material now electronically, um, but there's still a very much an incomplete record there. Even, but even what we've found has been, you know, like I say, the, the very fact that we were able to discover that the government has had an effect on 10 times more things than anyone previously knew you know, that, that kind of sold the book, you know, like um, uh, that book sold pretty well, bearing in mind that it was a, a self-published book with even the front cover designed by us. We didn't bother to get any endorsements. <laughs> we just said what was in the book and uh, it sold 1,500 copies in a year, which isn't bad for a, well, it's good for a, for a self-published book. Um, no advertising, no nothing. But I think people could see that, you know, innately, inherently, there is something really important if, if, the um, national security state is involved in doing those kind of things. So, uh, yeah, particularly on on the quiet. What was the most surprising film where you said, oh, "I would have had no idea that there was any DoD involvement at all"? Maybe not a film, but the, the Department of Defense has been involved in really peculiar projects like um, Cupcake Wars, for example, like uh, the lifestyle TV shows Cupcake Wars, and I think there was a thing about. Um, some TV show about dogs and lots of cookery shows. Like the CIA was the CIA was represented as guests um, for some cookery show, which I can't remember now. Uh, Tom sent me the other day, and then halfway through the cookery show, because uh, it's like you know the they're, the chefs like the, are making food for like the director of the CIA, and the director of the CIA has to leave halfway uh, in the middle of dessert because something important happened. And I, you know that, that could have been. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact name of the show now, but you know that could easily have been, you know, what really happened, or it could have been the CIA saying, "Well, we've got the cameras in. Shall we manipulate this to make it look like we're actually doing something important?" <laughs> so we have to skip out during the uh, uh, Benoffee pie or whatever it is. Well, Matthew, is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your projects and see what's coming out? 
Uh, I think the best place, I, I don't really have a website or anything, but the, if you go to uh, the Writer With No Hands on Facebook, um, there's several thousand followers on that, and it's a, it's a good place to uh, put out all material about these kind of issues, but not just, like, not just advertising stuff, but there's a, you know, if you're interested in anything to do with movies, politics, power, political manipulation, uh, secret services and those kind of things that that's where I put out that kind of uh, those kind of links and those kind of ideas and comedy gotta have the comedy bit of comedy yeah Matthew thank you so much for your time today I'm so glad we can make this happen yeah thanks I'm sorry if I sounded a little bit flaky on, on the messages I just I, I, I've tended to find it quite hard to follow people's requests for for things because after, in the aftermath of um, National Security Cinema Tom and I must have done about 40 interviews each and it just I, I kind of lost the will to continue doing interviews um, over anything um, let alone over uh, the, uh, the old Gary project but it's been um, it's been nice to um, talk to you and I hope that's of, of some use to you anyway We are back, and we were talking about The Writer with No Hands. Do you have any uh, final thoughts about the documentary? Would you recommend this to anybody? I would. People who like documentaries, and there seems to be a growing number of them these days, which is encouraging. Uh, I would recommend seeing it. It's, like I said, it's not boring. It is intriguing. It just, the, the, the most negative thing about it, I have to say, is that it just presents such a strange story it doesn't give you enough story points i think a better version exists out there or theoretically exists it seems like this would play in so many of my sweet spots you know a documentary about a screenwriter a documentary about propaganda a documentary about you know a film about a film kind of thing the whole idea of the the story of what Gary DeVore was allegedly working on this whole um, idea of making this heist film, which is actually a cover up and distracting from, you know, stealing these tapes that, uh, that were made of dignitaries or uh, officials who were having sex with underage prostitutes of boys and girls down in, in Nicaragua. I mean, all of that stuff, you know, we were just talking uh, recently on an episode of, uh, we did an episode on the parallax view and, it devolved into talking about, you know, conspiracies and these kind of things and talking about, you know, how everything these days when it comes to, um, some of the crazy, uh, conspiracy theories that are going on, so many of them are still swirling around like Pizzagate and underage, uh, sex and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, wow, it just, everything seems to come back to that. You know, that's like the, the high crime, right? And even this story goes back to that, where it's just like, oh yeah, they, Manuel Noriega had all these cameras set up and he would, it was a honey trip. He would have people come down. He would offer them, you know, sex with these kids. People would get into it. Then he would make tapes and then he had the tapes. And that's why we invaded Nicaragua. So it's like, yeah, that's a fascinating story. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. How much 
truth is there to that? Can you investigate that story? Nope, we can't. No. (laughs) (laughs) We can't and we won't. And Alford found, allegedly, the notes for that script. It was called The Big Steal. So... And he talks about that in his book, but it's never even brought up in the movie. So it's like, give me some screenshots. Give me some actual footage of him looking at the script. I want to know more about this. And I don't think it was to the point where it was actually in script form. It sounds like it was still in very much the notes phase. But show me the notes. Give me all that kind of stuff. Give me a reason why Gary DeVore would have been taken out. There were ways that uh, movies can leave you. I say if a movie leaves you wanting to seek out more information about its subject, that's a good thing. And I do. I do think it's a good thing. You're not going to waste your hour or your 70 minutes or whatever. <laughs> Whichever version you happen to see, uh, it's yeah, it's worth watching, definitely. Yeah, I agree. Even though we've been kind of tearing into it for the last you know hour-ish over here, I still think that it's worth it propaganda you got to got to beat it around a little bit to figure out what's real or not or whether their arguments stand up it deserves it it deserves a little beating i think every good documentary does though yes if they just handed stuff to us on a silver platter what fun would that be well i don't know would they have a clown nose god damn that ending (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad you said that was the same castle facade, because when he goes out there and he's juggling, I was just like, is that that same goddamn metaphor that we saw earlier in this movie? It is. And the fact that he participated in that, when he clearly didn't want to participate anymore by showing up as a clown, but yet, hey, let's go way back out here and you start juggling and I'll get this amazing drone footage or whatever. Like, I, I want to see that conversation, talking him into doing that. I mean, there's just so much behind the scenes or between the scenes is probably more apt that the movie could have given us that I think would have been doubly fascinating. Yeah, when Alfred told me via IM that he did not want to talk about, because that was, you know, we, we talked a little bit off mic about this, that Alfred was dodging me a little bit. And one of the things was he said outright, he said, I don't want to talk about the Gary DeVore case. I was like, okay, so I'm going to interview about this documentary, but we can't talk about the DeVore case. Well, that's fine, actually, because I want to talk to you about the movie. And I want to talk to you about the making of the movie because that's a story unto itself. So I think I danced around DeVore in the interview. People can judge how well or poor I did with that, but yeah, there's so it's that's why I don't go to the heart of the matter and just start pummeling him with divorce questions. But really, there are many stories to be told here. And I think one of the more fascinating ones is how the hell did we end up with this documentary? Absolutely. I kind of wondered too, and this is probably just me projecting, no pun intended, but the title, it, the title itself, The Writer with No Hands. We know that refers to DeVore, but also, in a way, it could refer refer to Alfred, like an emperor has no clothes sort of thing, because he is a writer, and he was pursuing this story, but yet botched it, didn't get anywhere with it, or really, there was no story to pursue, something. I don't know. There's something you can read into that. Why don't you, you do a paper on that? 
I, I love assigning term papers after podcasts. It's fantastic. So, Rod, I want to thank you for coming back on the show. You're a glutton for punishment. What have you been working on lately? I'm still running uh, two websites in my spare time, as if I really have any. Uh, bookgasm.com for book reviews and flickattack.com for movie reviews. And uh, life keeps getting in the way of me writing as much on those as I would like to and turning some of the material I've collected over the last 20 years into books, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. When are you going to start your Kickstarter? I don't think I will be starting a Kickstarter. (laughs) Everybody's doing a Kickstarter these days. I don't think I need to do a Kickstarter because I would, I wouldn't be able to handle the pressure of, Hey, when's this coming out? I gave you my money. Yeah, I keep a list of shame on my uh, <laughs> Facebook. Just like, here's all the people I've given to who have never given me anything in return. As you should. The ones that get me are the ones where like, I donated to a movie, and then it's actually been out on Netflix for a while. And I'm just like, well, where's my digital copy of this movie? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's on Netflix. Okay, good, thanks. Right. Didn't you do a documentary recently that... that- you even contributed to and couldn't get a screening copy of? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's why I asked such vague questions on the King Cohen episode. It's like, oh, yes. <laughs> King Cohen. <laughs> and the other one, just to shame them, was Chuck Norris versus communism. So, oh, yeah, that is you, on Chuck Netflix. Norris. That's yeah. the one you're referring to then. Yeah, that's the one where I gave, and it's just like, hey, when's this coming out? And then next thing I know, available on Netflix. I'm like, wow. And that wasn't even like, you know, a Kickstarter or Indiegogo notice that I got. That was just me looking at instantwatcher.com and just being like, oh, okay, this is available now. All right. Thanks. You're welcome. Surprise. Well, thank you again, Rod, for coming on the show. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks for everybody for listening to the show. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.